1: Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project, looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features best-selling author, explorer, University Oxford law professor, and medical ethicist, Charles Foster, ruminating in his characteristically incisive and illuminating way on what the COVID-19 pandemic tells us about the worrying gap between how we typically view ourselves and how we actually act in a crisis. So let me begin... By commenting directly on something that you said during our recent filming session, you said that the pandemic has revealed a massive dislocation between how we look at ourselves, what we think we are, and what we actually are. Words to that effect. This is not obviously a verbatim quote. And in particular, with respect to uh, people in Britain, you referred to the fact that there is this stereotype of being phlegmatic, stiff upper lip, this sort of notion which was revealed to be patently untrue. And in fact, a driving factor responsible for many people's actions was fear. And while you recognize that there were some people who acted fearfully out of concern for others, and there were some heroic acts and there there was a lot of self-sacrifice. By and large, what this pandemic has revealed is a sense of uh, self-interest, a sense of personal fear, and that put many of these myths of how we regard ourselves to bed. So a, a question that I have following up on that is to what extent do you think that is a product of this particular time? So I'm always wondering when one is faced with the crisis, is it the case that our perceptions of identity and that our sense of how we view ourselves Is just a stereotype which is false and over time we have been complacent and led to believe it or have things objectively changed? To what extent do you think our collective self-image is a myth that we've been able to see now due to current circumstances or to what extent do you think perhaps it was always a myth?
0: I think it was always a myth and the pandemic has shown us brutally um, how deluded we were about the sort of creatures that we are. Uh, I think what it's shown is the degree of our spiritual crisis. There's no better word for it, really. We don't have a sense of dignity, which is independent of the structures which we build around ourselves, political, sociological, and so on, in order to support that sense of identity and dignity. And when those structures are threatened, we fall apart as human beings. And one of the ways in which uh, the falling apart is manifested is that we get panicky about the the, the destruction of that little which is left to us. Uh, we have so little in our core um, that we think that just a, a little bit of diminution of that will um, lead to the destruction of ourselves, which I think is probably right. If we were bigger, weightier human beings with a bigger sense of of our worth, we would be able to countenance the possibility of losing lots of things, perhaps even including our lives, with a greater degree of philosophical placidity. I, mean, I, I compare the way in which uh, we have reacted to this crisis with the way in which Medieval people in England uh, reacted to far greater crises like the Black Death and catastrophic wars. There was, in those older times, a sense that life was more than the mere temporal challenges, that human beings were more than the bodies in which they walked around and therefore the, the catastrophic challenges which faced them in those days weren't as catastrophic as we would now perceive them to be. So we have been shown to ourselves as weightless animals. Uh, we don't have, to put it another way, a mythos, a, a story about ourselves that is sufficiently sustaining um, to accommodate and prevail over these relatively little challenges uh, which have been facing the world over the last couple of years
1: okay so i th- th- that that makes a great deal of sense and you've said that very eloquently i fear that i i probably wasn't clear enough in my in my question so i'm i'm going to ask a, a variant of that and be very specific so when i was growing up there was a mythos associated with the second world war and with the the uk in particular and As I spent time in Britain, I encountered many people who certainly reflected that mythos, this idea of the island that was protecting liberty as the rest of the world and certainly the rest of Europe was sliding into fascism. And associated with that very inspiring and patriotic notion was this idea of the British people being stoic willing to sacrifice hardships willing to band together willing to uh, make a, a civil commitment and be able to undergo massive amounts of undue suffering for a higher cause and as i came to spend more time in england i recognized that this was a view that many people in in england very much had of themselves and in fact it permeated the public discourse to the extent where it was invoked for things completely inappropriate like Brexit or, or or what have you. And my question is, when you see something like this, and I agree very much with your comments about how the pandemic has revealed how frail we are, how we are not predisposed to sacrificing for other people, how something which is relatively, notwithstanding all the, the suffering and death that it has caused, relatively minor on the overall scheme of things, when you compare it to these other great crises, it makes one question, well, is it the case that all of these stories that I have been told before, specifically with respect to the war and the attitudes and the willingness to sacrifice of other individuals, is that all rubbish? Or is it the case that we have changed as a society, that we have become far less capable of even acting in a heroic way?
0: Uh, We've changed. Uh, And we've changed in the sense that we don't have sustaining stories. And that's a relatively recent change. It's a change which has happened since uh, the Second World War, which was one of the signposts that you've you've just indicated. So I think that uh, Britain's uh, Second World War response would be inconceivable for the sort of people that we now are. The stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves are too flimsy to bear the weight of any real challenges. And that is because our sense of self is so flimsy that it can't play a colorful leading role in an adequate story.
1: Before we investigate that a little bit further, and also notions of, uh, you began talking about spirituality, and I'd like to get to that as well, because these all seem related, at least in my mind. But I want to bring it to a personal level. You said something which was surprising to me during... A recent film session where you said, I for one don't like the look of Charles Foster that I've got over the last couple of years. What did you mean by that exactly?
0: Well, I like to think of myself as somebody who is detached from national and international controversies, who can look in um, a dispassionate way at the storms which are going on all around us. And that is plainly not true. I've looked at the Political anger in myself, which um, which has bubbled up over um, some of the things which have happened over the last couple of years, and instead of the the sadness, the regret, um, the sense of bereavement, the sense of hope which should have sprung from uh, looking at these things, um, I have seen that I am just as much a combatant in the culture wars which have sprung up around the COVID situation as as anyone else. So I'm I'm disappointed in myself. I mean, that said, I have discovered some good things about myself. I've discovered that human beings are even more important to me uh, than I thought that they were, Uh, that I am a person who is less easily satisfied with Simple cerebration than I thought I was. I uh, rediscovered the vital importance of eating and drinking with my friends, of looking at the mosses and the birds just around the corner and being sustained by those. So, uh, a a mixture of things, as is always the case in life, but by and large, uh, I come out of the last couple of years with a less impressed view of Charles Foster than I went into it, which is a thoroughly good thing. You can't prescribe therapy unless you have a proper diagnosis. So I've I've got, like us all, I hope, um, a better idea of what I am, and therefore a better idea of what needs to be worked on.
1: Well, as you say, like us all, but I think that sadly, your disposition and your attitude is not as common, let alone universal, as would be optimal, which is to say that I think the detached, objective, cold-blooded recognition of one's failings is, as you say, essential to be able to uh, move forwards productively and, in fact, to improve. And even the recognition that we are striving in whatever direction by whatever criteria you might like to invoke as to what that means to be progressing, necessitates, of course, an awareness of where we are failing. And I I think that's somehow related, this is all sounding very heavy handed, but I I do believe that that's somehow related to part of the societal issues that you have diagnosed. But hopefully I can get out of the realm of cliche and start asking uh, rather more pointed questions much as that's not very much in character. So let's talk specifically about contingency because you, you you make a few very specific points and I think it would be beneficial to to highlight those. So my understanding of what you're saying is that one of the things that this pandemic has revealed is how being knocked out of our daily rhythm, even to for some people to small extents, so obviously there have been many people who have been knocked out to a rather significant extent out of their rhythm, because of the last two years, either because of suffering grievous health issues or because a loved one has suffered grievous health issues or whether their economic and social world has been turned upside down. So I'm in no way trivializing this. But when one compares the events of the last two years, which I think is your point, to crises that have happened throughout history, It certainly is not something that would parallel a a major crisis or upheaval. And the idea that so many people seem unable to deal with even small amounts of unforeseen events that are happening to them, I think reveals a certain, as you say, flimsiness or weakness about this. And in one of your uh, recent pieces, you highlight the benefits of farmers being aware of living a life that's associated with daily contingencies, terrible storms that destroy their crops. So they're used to this idea that they're not in control. And one of the things that you seem to be highlighting is that for most of us, we're just simply not used to that anymore. We're so easily derailed in a profound way by something which we no longer have control of. To me, and maybe this is just my morbid side showing, but to me, this is linked to an idea that we are shoving aside the notion of death, that we're just simply not willing to imagine or confront the, the the future. And we're living very, very much in the moment. Yes, we assume that that moment is something which is under our control, but more significantly, we're not even going forwards and conjecturing what might happen beyond that. And the reason why, why I believe this to in fact be the case is because of course, All of these contingencies are related to an overall perspective of how we want to live our lives and what's important to us, and an awareness of what the final end product will be, which, of course, sadly, given our mortality, is death. Does that make any sense to you as I'm rambling on? Is that a a logical stream of thought that you would subscribe to as well, or am I completely off base?
0: You're not remotely rambling. I agree with every little bit of that. Of course, as a matter of fact, being Mortal humans, um, our lives are woven of contingency. If my heart stops for a few beats, I will be dead. If the cells of my gut start multiplying in an uncontrolled way, I will be dead. If a psychopath across the other side of the world decides that he wants to destroy the world in order to prop up his own ego, I will be dead. Um, we normally close our eyes to these things because, as you say, the unthinkability of mortality is something which we're constitutionally unable to grapple with. It, it seems to me that quite a lot of our attitude towards contingency these days, um, and particularly as highlighted in the last couple of years, is tied up with the unhealthy relationship that we have with with power, with control. We've become used to to being powerless or at least outsourcing all our power to people other than ourselves. So we outsource our ability to gather information to the internet. Um, We are prepared to have all our choices about what we like and buy dictated to us by algorithms produced by huge corporations. We have been prepared uncritically to accept what powerful governments say is the right way to uh, approach this COVID crisis. It's shown that we like living in nanny states of various sorts, whether that nanny state is a corporation or whether it's a, a, an actual uh, national state. And when those big controlling mechanisms themselves seem to be inadequate, as has been shown, for, for example, by the, the, the plane dysfunctionality of the British government in dealing with this, um, with this COVID crisis. Since we don't have any residual power of ourselves, we shudder most utterly.
1: Let me get back, if I may, to this idea of our lack of awareness of our mortality. And I have some minor issue with what you said. You said it's unthinkable to countenance our mortality. And my understanding of the argument is, well, that's part of being human. We're aware of our mortality. We don't like to think of our mortality. And of course, that's a true statement on the whole. But I think there are distinctions that you can make in different societies. And I also think this idea of spirituality that you mentioned also comes into play. So for example, if you look at many great works of art, there are memento mori. There, there, and if you look at other cultures in the past, there was this regular awareness and understanding of the fact, through rituals, through going to church every Sunday, through what have you, that there was this deep understanding of our mortality that was reinforced in a regular way throughout our lives. And I think that gave a certain perspective and perhaps a certain ability to weather various contingent events and a certain grounding of what's important and what's not important in our daily lives and in our in our necessity of prioritizing and recognizing community. Now, I don't want to overly romanticize things and say, well, we should all go back to the Middle Ages, or, or we should all go back to the 18th century and, and live in a deeply unhygienic environment, and we should all necessarily be subjected to ritualized religious organizations and so forth and so on. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying that sociologically, if you look at it from a big picture perspective, at least in in Western cultures, it seems like there were times when for all sorts of reasons, good and bad, we were made to confront our mortality within a, a, a recognized sociological framework and a community. And and that grounded our beliefs and it grounded our judgments and it grounded our desires. And as such it enabled us to naturally be perhaps more tied to each other than we are in a situation that we're in now, when I think people just are able to push those things to the side. Is there something to to that in your view? Because again, this is all part of my sense of, okay, things are different, things are terrible. It's clear that this pandemic has revealed all sorts of deeply, deeply unsavory aspects of contemporary society. And the question I'm trying to address is, well, is that a new thing? To what extent is it a new thing? To what extent is it just an inevitable part of being human? Because if it's a new thing, then that gives me more hope that we might be able to at least improve it and evolve towards something more positive. Whereas if it's something that's inextricably tied with the human condition, then obviously the likelihood of being able to make progress on that is considerably diminished.
0: I agree with every syllable. Um, So, uh, I am Greek Orthodox. Every week I go to the Greek Orthodox Church, and when I go there, um, there is a liturgy which celebrates the death and the rising of a god. In participating in that Eucharistic um, choreography, each believer metaphorically dies and rises again. On the walls of the Greek Orthodox Church are the faces of dead saints and um, dead saints who it's believed um, are uh, still alive. There is a direct confrontation um, in that choreography of one's own mortality but also inherent in that confrontation is um, the acknowledgement that death is not the end and that therefore mortality is is not something which needs to dominate um, every aspect of your life, although an acknowledgement of one's mortality um, is a central part of determining uh, what one does in the kitchen and the bedroom and the workplace. If one goes to Greece, this sense of death and resurrection oozes not just from the churches and the eyes of the icons but also from the land itself. And that is true, of course, for many other places. Just Greece is my particular place. I think you can feel it um, in uh, lots of parts of these islands, particularly um, the island of Ireland, for example, where these old ideas of death and resurrection and therefore the ultimate meaningfulness and significance of human beings are are woven into the trees and flow down with the rivers. So. My conviction is um, that human beings are, are glorious. I might have sounded uh, very misanthropic in lots of the things I've said, but um, because I don't think that human beings are constitutionally wretched and demeaned, I have great hope. Uh, and I have great hope not just as an apocalyptic hope, but I have great political and sociological hope. I think that lots of the the meltdown that we're seeing in our contemporary culture is hopeful. Lots of the chaff of delusion is being burnt away. We've discussed already how this COVID crisis has allowed us to see what we are. If we see what we are, uh, we can note the dissonance between our ideas about ourselves and the sorts of creatures that we have come to be, and we can do something about that. So the reason that I'm so often disappointed in humans is not because I think that they are irredeemably miserable creatures, uh, but because they are capable of of so much more than they they should be, and they won't be happy unless and until they they return to an appreciation and are working out in their everyday lives of the sorts of animals that they really are just to continue on this this theme just for a moment, it does seem to me that in talking about what we should do in the aftermath of COVID and so on, we seem all the time to be suggesting treatment of symptoms rather than symptoms of causes. And the causes of not just the COVID malaise, but the the general environmental malaise, the malaise associated with the grotesque um, inequalities in the world where you have so much power and wealth concentrated in the hands of a tiny number would be addressed by the radical humility which is at the heart of christianity and going back to the environmental crisis i think that we can date the start of the environmental crisis most plausibly but perhaps to the neolithic but most certainly to the desoulment of the world at the time of the enlightenment so up until then it had been presumed and yes even in the mainstream abrahamic monotheisms uh, that the whole of the world, including the non human world, was ensouled. So Aristotle had said, yes, there are human souls, but below those, there are animal souls, below those, there are vegetable souls. And, and that, that hierarchy, of course, had produced certain toxic characteristics. It allowed us to treat animals sometimes in a callous way, but at least it recognized the moral significance of, of everything in the non human world. The end product of the Reconception of the world as a machine, which happened in the Enlightenment, uh, was to decree that the world was not in a, an intrinsically ensouled place. It wasn't an organism. It was a machine. And it's not obviously wrong to smash up a machine, although it is obviously wrong to kill an ensouled organism. So I, I don't think you could have had the um, environmental catastrophes, the mass extinctions um, that we are now seeing. if. The world had remained full of souls, as, as up until then it had been presumed to be. So that, that's a, another lens, if one is uncomfortable with the specifically Judeo-Christian one, through which to look at the spiritual dimension of, of this crisis.
1: Yes, and I'll give you another one. So I believe that you can combine aspects of what would nominally and usually be associated with the Enlightenment, namely science, and I'd like to explore the issue of science and scientism with respect to COVID in a moment. But I believe that you can responsibly and critically, and in a very modern way, envelop both a scientific biological perspective that respects Enlightenment traditions in that domain, which is not surprising and a much more integrated global awareness of life. Namely, looking at the interconnectedness of life. So one of the people I've been reading quite a lot of recently is Lewis Thomas. Yes. For those who were not familiar with Lewis Thomas, he was a biomedical researcher, he was a doctor, he was also a hospital administrator, and he was somebody who was very, very firmly entrenched in the global and uh, and, and American uh, biomedical establishment. And he was also an award-winning essayist later in his life and a very reflective individual and a very thoughtful individual. And there are many things that he wrote. In particular, I'm thinking of one of his more famous essays in his collection, Lives of a Cell, which is perhaps his most famous collection where he talks about how the entire world is remarkably analogous in terms of its coherence, in terms of its cohesion, in terms of its interdependency to a living cell. And so one can adopt that approach and one can recognize that in order to successfully move forwards to address the global problems that we are facing, environmental problems, social problems, what have you, that if we bear that image, if we bear that metaphor in mind, then we will be able to achieve a much greater level of progress than if we don't. And that's a very, very different uh, metaphor or or analogy or framework, I, th- I think is perhaps the best way to look at it, than this clockwork machinery view that, well, it's just a machine that we can tinker with and play and all the parts don't have any consequence in terms of some greater moral whole. Because, of course, associated with the idea of the world being analogous to a cell is this notion that, well, you want to preserve the cell. You don't want to kill the cell. The cell is something which in itself has merit, has quality, has a certain, you can call it spirituality, you can call it life force, you can call it uh, moral imperative, if you will, to ensure, as any doctor would, that the patient keeps on living. If you start applying those sorts of ideas, again, within a, within a scientific framework, I think you can reach a similar end in terms of your approach to dealing with these types of problems, which don't necessarily have to ostensibly or perhaps officiously, depending on one's perspective, invoke a deity or a particular religious orientation.
0: Yes, I agree. Um, the, the cells have a very useful metaphor. It is plainly right that the only coherent understanding of life generally, whether it's biological or political or sociological life, is ecological. Everything bears on everything else. And that's true at, at a quantum level, um, just as it's true on a political level.
1: Well, it's interesting. To some extent, I think we're, we're coming to the same place from very different starting points. For me, this notion of interconnectedness. It still makes me feel a little squeamish when I say it. I believe it, but here's why it makes me squeamish. And before I get there, I'll say, in terms of interconnectedness and in terms of looking at the world as a cell, it's not only, as I certainly don't have to tell you, of all people, it's not only the idea that we have a connection with our brethren in Papua New Guinea, it's all life forms, in fact. But one of the problems that I have with this, this notion is even the expression, everything is connected, is one of these things that I've heard throughout most of my life. It's normally spouted, or at least in my experience, it was normally spouted by people who were very flaky, and they would say all sorts of things that were blatantly non-scientific, and they would also say all sorts of things that in my judgment were blatantly egocentric so they would say something like well i failed my chemistry test because everything is connected and and this is all part of some master plan and yeah. and then there would be people that would be spouting nonsense you know smoking hashish in a, in a in an ashram somewhere and and talking about how everything was connected so whenever i would hear people invoke the phrase everything is connected it would tend to make me run screaming towards you know something to calculate but Of course, that doesn't mean that it's false, and it doesn't mean that it's false if you look at it in the right context. And you just have to put a little bit of intellectual rigor behind the idea. And in fact, if you put sufficient amounts of intellectual rigor, whether it's through the understanding of physics, or whether it's through the understanding of biology, or whether it's through the understanding of subsets of those particular fields…
0: Or the understanding of religion. Yes. brings together the notion of the all and the notion of the discrete in a very coherent way in some religious iterations.
1: Absolutely. And of course, associated with that, the understanding of philosophy, some of the world's greatest thinkers have puzzled over these ideas and have developed these ideas. And of course, they did so in a way where it didn't have these interdisciplinary boundaries between religion and physics and philology and so forth. It was all part of people trying to make progress on these particular issues. So I I think just to go back to critically examining my own previous beliefs, just because flaky people say flaky things doesn't mean that there isn't something inherently meritorious behind some concepts which may use the same vocabulary. Let me just, let me put it that way. So this brings us to the notion of science in our society and what we have learned through the pandemic. And you said something, again, very interesting in, in our recent filming session. You managed to say, by the way, you set the record for saying the greatest density of interesting things. You only spoke for about 10 minutes and you said a remarkably high number of, uh, of, of really pointed things in that. So congratulations for that. I think you have a long and glorious additional career as, as somebody involved in the filmmaking world after this. Um, you said among scientists, we've seen lots of dogmatic pontification an idea of science is effectively a catechism rather than science is a skeptical method of approaching the investigation of the world. So this was interesting to me in two ways. First and foremost, it was interesting because this is something which I have heard almost nobody say other than me. My poor wife has had to listen to me pronounce upon this for years now. And I have found the response by scientists to this pandemic to be very, very mixed. There are some incredibly inspirational stories. There are some incredibly, to my mind anyway, depressing stories. But I think it it begins as I want to probe what you said and to what extent we agree, because I'm not sure we agree 100%, but we might. Because to to my mind, it depends on what we mean by science and scientists here. Yeah. And personally, there are many different dividing lines that I I have I've experienced. There's a dividing line between biologists and biomedical researchers. There's a dividing line between biomedical researchers and doctors. There's another dividing line between doctors and epidemiologists. I mean, this is my dividing line. Obviously, you can divide them in all sorts of different ways. And there's a dividing line between epidemiologists and public policy advisors and the epidemiologists who are going on television and the punditocracy and all the rest of that. And I think... To the naked eye, as it were, all of these people are part of the scientific community. And I'm not sure that that's meaningful or helpful or even valid. And one of the things which personally gets my goat under the circumstances is when people march up and down the street with placards, or at least they go on television and they say, trust the science. And this bothers me for all sorts of reasons. First of all, I have no idea what they mean by the science. Hence my distinction into all these different categories and subcategories. And secondly, it shouldn't really be a question of trust. It should be at at least not naked trust. There should be some understanding of what, what we even mean. And when we start parsing trust, we certainly don't mean trust the science as in we trust in God or trust the science as in we just unthinkingly do whatever it is that our neighbor tells us to do. And to me, uh, who holds many of the Enlightenment values, to me, the single greatest lesson from the Enlightenment, in fact, is that it's not so much a question of, it's it's not at all a question of blind trust. It's a question of having the potential to be able to construct an argument and a series of evidence-based steps that anyone in principle would be able to follow. And in that sense, it's an emancipation. Anyway, I'm rambling. So, so let, me, let me try to ask you a specific question, because I understand that's what you're supposed to do when you're in my circumstances. Do you agree that the notion of science and, and scientists and scientism is vastly more complicated than it has been portrayed to the general public during this crisis?
0: Absolutely. We see not science on the TV screens, but we see scientism. But in order to understand the backdrop to this discussion, we do have to go back to the Enlightenment. It seems to me that, um, at its root, the Enlightenment is a movement of profound skepticism. It says that there are no questions which cannot be asked, there are no questions that uh, cannot, in principle, be answered. And the science which came off the back of that and which had been pioneered in the few centuries before that provided a method primarily the empirical method uh, for investigating the nature of the universe in the free unfettered way uh, which that skeptical orientation allowed and indeed mandated but that very quickly it seemed to me became sclerosed into a series of axioms about the way the world was so we see the the pillorying of anyone who chooses to suggests something which doesn't fall within the accepted pigeonholes of so-called Enlightenment science. We see grotesquely um, overblown claims about what the Enlightenment scientific method can produce. So, for example, Stephen Pinker, one of the high priests of the the modern Enlightenment, um, says something along the lines of, one of the great bequests of the scientific revolution is to dispel once and for all the delusion that the universe is saturated with purpose. An extraordinary statement. And because one cannot demonstrate in the laboratory, using scientific methods, that the universe either is saturated with purpose or is not saturated with purpose. That's not that's not within the, the, the domain of science. I see constantly my particularly biologist colleagues at the University of Oxford being forced to adopt schizophrenic lives. They work away all day in their laboratories trying to force the facts of the observed world into the received categories. And then they come home, they're met at the door by their wives and their children, to whom they act in a way which cannot remotely be described by the laws of reciprocal altruism or kin selection. They pet the dog they don't question for a moment. The dog that looks up at them with its big brown eyes has consciousness, that it has a soul in some sense, that it's trying to have a relationship with them which is not adequately characterized by all the principles that they've been deploying nine till five. And I think we see much less of that in the, the world of the physical sciences, but it's, it's, it's really pervasive um, throughout the, the world of the biological sciences. All of which is to say that the scientific project that we have now has gone a very long way from its enlightenment roots. If these biological scientists were appropriately sceptical, realising that there was no question which couldn't be asked, they would acknowledge the distinct possibility that they have a clairvoyant conversation with their dog, which knew probably when they were going to come home, etc., etc., etc. They would use their Enlightenment methods um, to try to probe all the many phenomena of of ordinary human life, uh, which have been regarded as beyond the grasp of the scientific method. Love, religious feeling, clairvoyance, all these things which we acknowledge at so many levels in our everyday lives, but systematically deny the validity of when it comes to our our scientific discourse. But going going back to the COVID debate, all we see are assertions. We don't see assertions coupled with the Enlightenment tag, which was always there, oh, this might not be right, because everything is always up for grabs. Everything is always subject to um, rebuttal by the evidence which is just around the corner. Paradigms in the Enlightenment, proper Enlightenment world are there to be shattered, not to be worshipped. And as long as we approach the contribution of science to our political discourse in this sclerosed, religious, fundamentalist way, we're not going to have science make the contribution which it should do. We're going to see it behaving towards politics and ethics in a petulantly totalitarian way, which is, I think, how we've seen uh, the scientists um, representing themselves over the past couple of years.
1: Well, this is very disappointing because I had hoped that we would be able to have a flagrant disagreement. but uh,
0: It's not very good for your listeners, is it?
1: Uh, well, who knows? Who knows if we even have any listeners, so <laughs> the, the heck with it. Let me preface my response by saying that while it's true that I have a physics background and I will be henceforth hammering against biologists from my recent experiences, it is not the case that I'm one of these in, incredibly obnoxious physics supremacists. I mean, I, I might well be incredibly obnoxious, but not, not in that particular way. But now let me turn to the biology community. And just to pick up on some of your comments, let me tell you some personal anecdotes of what happened in my experiences with this particular project that I'm working on. So originally, my intention was actually not to be examining the sociological aspects in anywhere near as great a detail as I have subsequently decided to do related to the pandemic, but instead use this opportunity to explore the biological world. My thinking was, we're all thrust into a situation where we have to examine all of these developments in biology and most of us, myself most definitely included, are not sufficiently knowledgeable about these ideas. And wouldn't it be a great opportunity to explore them, to use this this sense that we're all of a sudden we're being pressed by trying to muddle our way through the terminology and the concepts and the ideas associated with what's been happening over the past couple of years, and try to learn about it. So how do vaccines actually work? How does the immune system actually produce a response? What has really been happening? How do, in particular, mRNA vaccines work? Are we in the midst of a biological revolution? And if so, how? Mm. How do these processes actually move forwards? And in trying to engage with a number of biologists, and in particular, I'm talking about immunologists, people who were biomedical researchers, It has proven to be exceptionally and remarkably and surprisingly difficult to have a sense of engagement with them of what's actually going on. As you know, I have professionally been involved in lots of forays, talking with experts in a wide variety of different domains, be it philosophy, be it history, be it classics, be it neuroscience, be it political theory with people who are experts and trying to distill their thoughts and ideas into a way which can be understood by non-specialists. And most significantly, trying to distill what the core issues are, what's keeping them up at night, what what we still need to discover, what the outstanding mysteries are and why, what the conflicting interpretations of the facts are, who believes what and why, and so forth and so on. So, I have had a wealth of experience in this domain. I was completely stymied. I tried talking to immunologist after immunologist after immunologist, trying to get a sense of what's really happening here. Let me give you a particularly revealing example for me. So I talked to somebody who is an expert in AIDS research and trying to develop an AIDS vaccine. And he has been involved in COVID, but of course he's, he's primarily involved in AIDS uh, research. In the course of my researches before I met him, it came to my attention that there was this notion of of a so-called broadly neutralizing antibody. So here's the domain, right? You have one of the problems, there are all sorts of issues as I understand it, that make HIV particularly difficult to address. One of which is that unlike these variants that we have uh, for COVID that everybody's familiar with now, the alpha, beta, delta, Omicron, and so forth and so on. When it comes to HIV, there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different strains of this particular virus. And in addition, the, the, the morphology of the virus is such that, there, that it's, it's vastly more complicated. It somehow is able to protect itself in all sorts of different ways against the antibodies and, and, and so forth. And in addition to that, of course, it, it directly attacks cells of the immune system. But anyway, uh, the, the point is there are zillions of different strains and variants. And he is part of a research agenda that is a, quite a, a promising and, and, and recognized research agenda that, worldwide of looking for these so-called broadly neutralizing antibodies. So the idea is that we will find an antibody that can be effective to some degree against all these different types of strains of, uh, of HIV, And so my ears pricked up because this opens up a whole lot of obvious questions, but this would get anybody, any lay person, anybody, any reasonable person, tremendously excited because you start thinking, okay, well, that can be potentially transformative because now we have somehow an antibody, which is is able to combat a huge panoply of different strains. So I start thinking, well, how do you characterize what it means to be broadly neutralizing? What's actually happening mechanistically with these things? Um, what do we even mean by that actually happening? And so you start imagining you know, a mathematical space where this is neutralizing to some extent, this is not neutralizing, where do you draw the lines? And to understand where you draw the lines and how you categorize these things, you necessarily have to get into the mechanics of what's actually going on. These are obvious, obvious, obvious questions to be, to be imagining. And so I start trying to ask this person, what do we know and what are our boundaries and how can we characterize this? And it is a complete inability to communicate, which is being manifested in this. This is not even a conversation. He comes back to me and, and starts giving analogies about how you have to take a shortcut walking around a mountaintop or something. I have no idea what he's saying. He can't understand what I'm saying. And I can't understand what he's saying at all. It's a complete mismatch of communication. And that was very striking to me because it it jarred with my previous experiences. It's not that this is a stupid person because he is most definitely not. It's not that he's an uncaring person because he doesn't, by all accounts, seem to be an uncaring person at all. It's just that there's a different framework, a different view. The only conclusion that I could come from this was, for him, what a broadly neutralizing antibody was, he goes into, he he has a bunch of pathogens, he goes into a laboratory, he sees if this antibody neutralizes by whatever criteria he uses to express what neutralizing is. And if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that just is completely, I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong, but that's my that's my extraction from what's going on because we were just completely unable to communicate and it was deeply, deeply frustrating. So that's the end of my long rant. Does any of this resonate with you whatsoever?
0: Absolutely. Really fascinating and and, and disturbing, uh, but not tremendously surprising stories. In relation to biological researchers that you talked about, if they knew the answers to your questions, then I suspect that the reason for their failing to communicate their knowledge is because of their intrinsic belief uh, that they are high priests and that their esoteric knowledge should not be disseminated to uh, the hoi Um, It's about power. We almost began our conversation uh, by talking about power. To relinquish any of their knowledge would be, in their eyes, for their power to be reduced. But I suspect that one of the reasons for their coyness is that they didn't know the answer. And they are constitutionally incapable of acknowledging that they don't know the answer, entirely contrary to the enlightenment uh, scientific humility, at the core of which was an acknowledgement that all one's ideas about the way the world spun were conditional and were likely to fall the next moment. And what you say about the ethos of the biological academy as opposed to the the Physical Scientific Academy, um, rings very true for me. And I wonder if that is to be explained partly by the fact that physicists are constantly thinking the unthinkable, minds wandering in abstract realms where categories like status just have no meaning. But also I suspect that biologist arrogance is explained by some unconscious acknowledgement that... Their paradigms are really falling apart. They're creaking. They, they don't work. They know that when they come home, as as we were as we were just discussing. Um, and in order to prop up the insecurities which are generated by that um, acknowledgement, they look to the big society figures, the the, the Nobel laureates, whose very adoration by the establishment can give them some reassurance that their own laboratory lives are not um, radically misconceived. I, mean, I-, I wonder, too, whether biologists' um, affection for status doesn't stem to some degree from their misunderstanding of Darwinism. Absolutely. I think that lots of biologists do um, have this unscientific belief that humans are at the peak of the evolutionary pyramid and that biologists being, in their eyes, the peak of humanity are the best things that nature can come up with and therefore their edicts should be um, unquestioned and unquestionable. All things which uh, make it very difficult for biological science to contribute in a really useful way to the way that we run our personal and political lives.
1: Yes. One final point that I thought was particularly striking, you allude to Darwinism. When you look at evolutionary theory, there are many ways to look at it, and there is a dogmatic strain that's associated with evolutionary theory, as I understand it. So, let me, again, sink to the personal level to try to to clarify what it is that I mean. Most people, certainly most lay people, when they think of evolution, they think of notions of survival of the fittest, they think of competition, For resources, and they think of a world in which there are adversarial relationships between life forms. Mm. And then, of course, you have people who extend that to the socio-political realm, and you have social Darwinists and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And that's the notion that I think naively a lot of people have when it comes to evolution, and that's the notion that I think a lot of people who are scientists also have about evolution. But the picture is of course, much, much bigger than that. That's certainly the notion that I've had. And again, this is something which has, I think been highlighted by the pandemic. So all of a sudden I go from a situation where I'm just going about my daily life and I'm going here and I'm going there and I'm not thinking about things very much. And I'm aware of the fact that yes, I can, I can fall prey to an illness. And I'm aware that there are these things called viruses and bacteria that are out there. But by and large, I don't give it very much thought. And then like everyone else, I'm forced to be in a situation where I can't go out of my house without donning a mask to walk my dog or I go into a supermarket and I, I have to, you know, make, make it seem like I'm, I'm going into surgery or something like this. And there is this natural sense of almost paranoia in the sense that, uh, you know, we, we're evading small children because <laughs> they may be disease carriers and so forth you're reinforced in this adversarial world where everything is out to try to kill you, basically. And you're thinking this this way constantly. And this fits in very much with this survival of the fittest. We're going to be fit. We're going to survive. We're going to somehow conquer this. And I'm not saying, of course, that that's, that's completely wrong. I'm not saying that there, there are no adversarial uh, scenarios in evolution. And I'm not saying that there's nothing to be said for competition as a vehicle for natural selection or any of that. But what I'm saying is that's by no means the full picture. If you look at something, a very, very simple fact that I was not aware of until very recently, which again shows that I have no background in this whatsoever, is that only half of the cells in the human body are actually human cells. And in fact, it used to be that people thought that there were 10 to one cells that were non-human as opposed to human cells. And what this means is there are gazillions of bacteria that are within our bodies.
0: We are ecosystems.
1: Absolutely. The interaction, the notion of this, as you say, ecosystems, the idea of interdependence, the idea of an ecosystem is just as much a part, if not perhaps even a stronger part of the evolutionary story than the adversarial one. Absolutely. And that very, very basic point is something which is lost on most people. It was certainly lost on me. And you would think that at a time when we are all forced to learn about the biological world, we could have at least absorbed that basic fact. And most people don't. And why don't they? Because that's not the way it's presented to them at all.
0: Right. So we know that competition, although it's one of the generators of uh, the complexity in the natural world, is by no means the only one. Cooperation and downright altruism um, are also important generators. Lamarck is back, and he's increasingly getting tenure in the um, academy. The whole notion of competition being the sole principle of the natural world has produced so many evils, hasn't it, in the economic world and the political world. And we now know that the power which, for example, neoliberalism um, has has drawn rhetorically from Darwinism is based on a a misunderstanding of the significance of the metaphor of, of, of competition. Yes, The world is such a wonderful place that it's, it's highly unlikely that it could properly be explained by a single paradigm, a single way of looking at the world, by a single mechanism. And we now know that it's not. Yet, in this desperate way, characteristic of failing societies – we see the biologists clinging to this this single paradigm we see increased dogmatism rather than decreased dogmatism uh, we hear increased shrillness which is the characteristic tone of a defeated people as they retreat into to cognitive dissonance in order to preserve their their cherished traits deeply unenlightenment
1: i hope you enjoyed this pandemic perspectives podcast once again our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives A Filmmaker's Journey and 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.